Hi, and welcome to Common Law, a podcast from the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Galyubuff, the dean. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the vice dean. So we're doing something a little bit different today, Leslie. We are very different. Actually, it's different in a number of ways, right? The first one is the topic. As our listeners know, we've been talking about the future of law this season, and mostly, though not exclusively, that's been about technological changes coming and how they affect the economy and institutions and the law. But today, it's going to be more about our ideological and constitutional future. That's right. But there's another difference as well that has to do with our guests, and namely how many of them there are and who they are. Um, A couple of these folks are, full disclosure, related to us. Legally, anyway. Legally related. Legally. It's totally true. We know these guys pretty well, as will become clear in a minute. But we actually do have a really good reason for having so many. So these three particular guests are in the studio all at once today. And that's because they're all experts in a major area of constitutional law that's likely to see some changes in the near future. Right. So a lot of commentators looking at the Supreme Court think that its new makeup could mean changes in the area of church and state. And that's what these three folks have been writing about for quite a long time, and they've been writing about it together. So we want to talk with them about the future of religious freedom and the Supreme Court. Yeah. I mean, it's really a a three-for-one deal. So should we let them introduce themselves? Let's do it. Well, so thanks for having me. I'm Rich Schrager. I'm a professor at the UVA Law School, and uh, I'm really pleased to be here. I've been desperate to be on this show for for a long time, so so I'm glad I've finally, finally made the cut. Is there nothing else you want to add about who you are? Oh, I happen to be the husband of the dean, but that does not, <laughs> that does not, that's, there's no, yeah, favoritism. That's why it's taken so long, in fact, right? That's why it's taken so long. I'm Nelson Tebby. I teach at Cornell Law School, and I happen to be in town. Uh, in <laughs> and, and these fine people in, included me in the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm Micah Schwartzman. I'm also a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. And I'm married to the vice dean. So only Nelson is not married to someone else in this right, room. In this room. Yeah. But he, is, he, as our kids would say, he's a kind of work spouse for the two of you, which is why we wanted to have all three of you on together. So why don't you talk about your collaborations and, and what it is that you all do together? Well, so the three of us have been writing about uh, law and religion issues for the past, I don't know how many years now, five or six years, maybe more. We've been... Uh, writing articles, popular pieces, amicus briefs about issues involving the First Amendment and church and state. Yeah, uh, it has been informal, but consistent over these uh, few years. And uh, we're interested in a kind of common set of questions about uh, the free exercise clause of the Constitution, the establishment clause of the Constitution, um, and various statutory and regulatory provisions that, uh, that embody values of religious freedom and equality, how they interrelate. There have been a lot of controversies and cases in this area. Um, Folks might be familiar with um, a case from a number of years ago called Hobby Lobby, which was about whether there should be exemptions for a a company that had sort of religious views about contraception and whether they should have uh, required exemptions from providing contraception coverage for their employees. There was a case called Town of Greece uh, a couple of years ago in which uh, the question was whether uh, a city council can open the city council meeting with uh, a prayer and when those prayers were mainly Christian in content. 
And um, more recently, there's a case called Masterpiece Cake Shop, which has been discussed in the media, which is about whether a Christian baker who doesn't want to provide a wedding cake for lesbian and gay people um, is permitted not to not to do so on, under the free exercise clause of the U.S. Constitution. And so these issues are really uh, central these days and quite uh, salient. You guys, in fact, have some sort of agglomeration name, right? The three of you. I don't remember what it's called. Where? What do you call yourselves? What is the name? It's, it's like Schwartz. It's TSS, and in the in the they vary between Tebby Schwartzman. And Schrager and Tebby, Schrager and Schwartzman. It's just a matter of like who started writing the thing first. Yeah, who wrote the most? Mostly Nelson writes everything and we sign on because <laughs> it's, it's, it's just there's safety in crowds. So it, it's, it's like, not, well, it's you not, guys take it's the not, hits It's not too. true, Schrager. Sometimes I write the stuff oh, and you guys true. sign on. Or sometimes Nelson writes the stuff and you sign on. <laughs> so, so you don't do any of the writing, Schrager? Well, is pattern, is emerging. <laughs> pattern is emerging. Uh, you do the talking, though. Yeah, that's right. I'm the face <laughs> of, the, of TSS, which is kind of, we're kind of a law firm. We're like a little mini. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's a partnership. We have been called TSS, mostly by people who disagree with us. <laughs> <laughs> when in I fact, see. we are often STS or SST. Or right, right. That's right. Well, let's, can we step back a little bit and, um, and talk, just give, you know, the broad framework, where do these rules about religion come from in the constitution? And they're in the first amendment. We often think about the first amendment and speech, but the first amendment has many clauses in it, several of which have to do with religion. So tell us a little bit about what those clauses say. So the first amendment starts out by saying that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That's the establishment clause. And then it says, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We call that the free exercise clause. And the court has a body of jurisprudence under both clauses, and they're related to each other in various ways. The establishment clause tends to focus on government support of, uh, of religion, either through symbols or sometimes through um, funding, through aid to religious organizations. Um, and the free exercise clause often focuses on what we think of as freedom of conscience, uh, sometimes uh, laws uh, burden people's religious practice in different ways. And the question is, should the government accommodate those practices? Should it grant exemptions, for example, from general laws? And the court's jurisprudence under both clauses has um, been changing in recent years. It's been developing in important ways. There's been a shift in the composition of the court. We've got new justices, most recently Justice Kavanaugh, but also Justice Gorsuch. And we don't know exactly what will happen in the court's interpretation of of the religion clauses of the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And so part of what we're thinking about and part of what we're arguing about um, is the future of the religion clauses. What, what's going to happen in how we govern the relationship between church and state going forward? Uh, and that, that's what these current debates are all about. Can you give us a little sense before we get to the present and the future? Where, where, where have we come from? What has been the baseline before? Sure. I mean... The court has a substantial body of jurisprudence on, as Micah said, with regard to both these clauses, but it's relatively young, actually. The court didn't start to um, hand down decisions in, with respect to either free exercise or the establishment clause that were consequential until really after World War II in the 1940s and 50s. Once the um, Supreme Court decided the provisions of the First Amendment applied against the states, then the cases came kind of fast and furious. And the court had to figure out, you know, what, what do these provisions entail? What do they require? 
So some of their entailments were fairly obvious, right? Like, so the government can't discriminate on the basis of religion against, um, you know, particular religious minorities or really anyone. Um, but some of them were less clear. Like, here's a big one. Do religious actors get exemptions from general laws that apply to everyone else just because those laws conflict with their religious beliefs? Like, that's been a question that the court has, as a constitutional matter, um, vacillated on to some degree over over time. So give an example of some exemptions. What kinds of things would be an exemption? Well, for example, I mean, Rich mentioned the Hobby Lobby case, right? Um, so the Obama administration um, acting under authority of the Affordable Care Act had required all employers of a certain type who were providing health care um, insurance to include uh, insurance for contraceptions for women. And Hobby Lobby said that conflicts with our religious beliefs. We don't think that that law should be applicable to us. We're not asking um, the court to strike down that law as applied to everyone else. We just don't think it should be applied to us because it burdens our religious convictions. Um, so that's an exemption issue. And at first, uh, under the Warren Court, the court said um, there is presumptively a constitutional right to an exemption for religious actors from general laws. But then later in 1990, the court reversed course on that question. So then after 1990, the court said there is not presumptively a constitutional right to exemption from general laws for religious actors. And that was a Justice Scalia opinion that said it was, yeah, neutral, generally applicable laws people have to follow. Right. The um, justices who who signed on to that new rule were sort of cross cutting in terms of, you know, ordinary um, political alliances and so forth. Um, and, and now the, the thought is that maybe the court is getting ready to change course on that question again. There are a lot of complexities here. But when we're thinking about you know, sort of the broad history of the Fair Exercise Clause, the main point is we can see shifts um, and we can look into the future and, and anticipate further shifts. So what do you think they'll look like? And, and how far does that depart from what you think they should look like? Well, these are <laughs> these are nobody wants to answer that question. Yeah, well, we all want to answer the question. I see. Okay. You know, we're on, um, we've written together uh, on these issues, and one of the positions we've taken very strongly is that free exercise exemptions are permissible under certain circumstances, um, and in a wide array of circumstances, they're they're non controversial. Listen, if it's very low cost for the government to accommodate you, the government should if you have strong religious beliefs uh, that conflict with government regulations. So wait, just on that, what, what's an example of that? Where it's low cost. So there was a case about beard length in prisons. And the prison said, oh, you can't have a certain length beard. And a religious inmate who said, no, this is part of my religious belief system to have a certain beard length uh, challenged that. And the court said, you know, there's no good reason that the prison has given for why the beard length here is different. And they treated some other prisoners differently in regards to this and said, listen, if you don't have a good reason, government, then we're, we're not convinced that this is something that should override the religious conscience of the prisoner. And that seems perfectly acceptable. Um, we should try to accommodate uh, religious believers when we can. But our position has been when there's, there are pretty significant costs on non-believers or people that don't share your religion 
um, and those costs are imposed on on those individuals, that's a problem. And it's a problem for those individuals who have their own free exercise rights. And it's a problem from the standpoint of the government putting a thumb on the scale for one religion over another. And so I take it you think Hobby Lobby's in that category. Yeah. So uh, we think Hobby Lobby's wrongly decided and have said this repeatedly, which is, uh, in the original case, there was the the decision was based on this idea that well, even though Hobby Lobby won't fund the contraception in this case or the insurance that would ultimately be used by individuals who could choose to access contraception, the government will fill in. There was a kind of a mechanism by which the government could then get that contraception to the people that needed it uh, without costs. It turns out there were costs. And it turns out also the Trump administration has moved towards just exempting religious businesses from from contraception without filling that in. So that means that's enormous cost to the employees and their families who don't share that religion, who might have religious beliefs otherwise, who don't particularly um, abide by those kinds of rules. And that's an imposition of religion on those people. So you guys have called this a third-party harms argument. And the idea is that in this case, uh, granting an exemption to the employer imposes costs on third parties, those parties being the employees who want access to contraception and what's standing in their way is the uh, religious beliefs of their employer. So um, how do the wedding vendor cases fit into this, into your all's third-party harm theory? So the federal government in many states have protections, statutory protections for customers. They're called public accommodations laws, and they protect customers against being excluded from hotels, retail establishments, and so forth on the basis of you know certain protected characteristics, typically race, nationality, gender, and so forth. Religion. And religion, yeah, importantly. And uh, in Colorado, um, the public accommodations law includes LGBT customers as part of the protected class. So there was this baker, um, Jack Phillips is his name, who ran a bakery called Masterpiece Cake Shop. And he uh, he encountered one day a gay couple, two men, who came into the shop along with the mother of one of the uh, men to inquire about a, a wedding cake for their impending um, celebration. And when Jack Phillips saw that they were a same-sex couple, um, he said, I'm sorry, I can't serve you um, because I have religious objections to same-sex marriage. And uh, the couple brought an action arguing that this was a violation of Colorado's public accommodations law. And the state entities ruled in, in favor of the couple. Jack Phillips' argument was, I deserve an exemption from this um, regulatory regime because I have a strong religious belief that uh, prohibits me from serving uh, gay couples. So you could imagine that this, if if these types of religious exemptions were granted, then theoretically you could have business owners that refuse to provide service on the basis of sexual orientation or on the basis of religion or on the basis of race or on the basis of gender, right? If you get religious exemptions from this general law, you could have a religious objection to serving people on any one of those bases, right? We do actually have an example of this already extending out beyond LGBT status. There's an adoption service agency in South Carolina that just refuses to serve people of other faiths. Right? If you're a Catholic or you're Jewish, this organization refuses to work with you. Uh, and they've received a waiver from the government, uh, which allows them to discriminate 
according to their religious principles. And so there's an important question. If you can discriminate against gay and lesbian people, can you discriminate against other people who are also otherwise protected by public accommodations laws like the one that, that exists in Colorado and other states? And so there's a really important line drawing question that's raised by these cases. But, um, but I would add, it's not only that they can't get a cake, right? So one of the arguments in Masterpiece Cake Shop is that the gay couple could go down the street and get a cake from another baker. Like, why can't they go out and find someone else in the market who will serve them? And an important part of public accommodations law, of civil rights law, is that people should have equal citizenship, equal status in the market. We shouldn't have to have to try to figure out which companies when we go out into the market will serve us and which ones won't. In the civil rights era, in the 50s and 60s, there was something called a green book. Right? It, was a, it was a guide for African-Americans to tell them which businesses would serve them and which businesses wouldn't. And we don't think that the market should work that way, that, it, that you should have to have a, a guide to figure out who will serve you and who will not. And we should think of each other as equals when we enter into the marketplace. And, uh, and we think that the religion clauses of the First Amendment uh, help to protect that idea against challenges that are otherwise raised in the form of religious exemptions. Yeah, this is a this is a really important point. So the, the, we talk about weddings and wedding vendors and 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 that kind of stuff, but um, weddings are stressful and difficult <laughs> and challenging. And there's there's some there folks people who are around the table who can attest. To this. What, what weddings do you have in mind? <laughs> well, you know, you you go into the cake shop and your mother in law is behind you, and they lay out all the things to taste. You've been there, right? And you're tasting the brown cake and the white cake and the different flavors, and then you you get into your first fight about cakes before the weddings even you're not even married and you're fighting about the cakes and then you're fighting about the invitations and then you're fighting about the tablecloths and then you have to decide whether you're going to actually go through with it or you're just going to elope and abandon those people <laughs> who are driving you guys and leave the mother-in-law behind right this is right this is now now add to that you know this podcast is for public consumption right you know the mother-in-law is going to be listening the, the, I love you, mother-in-law. You're <laughs> fabulous, actually. Very supportive. But you add to that, let's say you go in this shop and then the wait, wait, where are like, you eloping to? you got to go someplace. I know, you got to go someplace. Vegas. You go to Vegas. Oh, Vegas. <laughs> it's always Vegas. In Vegas, no one will discriminate against I was going to say, yeah. Vegas takes all comers, so to speak. But you might have to go to Vegas, right? Because nobody will serve you or at least, you know, add to that the stress, right? As then they say, well, we don't, we're not part of, you know, we're not on board with this. They and they, go away. And, and you go have away. to go. You have to go find somebody else. And maybe there's somebody else down the street. Maybe there's not. But again, the the claim on the other side is: listen, the religious beliefs are really important, and your stress and your your mother in law is not so important, and you should you should bear that cost because religious uh, conscience is so important. And again, we're not saying anything about the importance of religious conscience. We believe strongly that it's quite important. But there's religious conscience on both sides here, and particularly in the marketplace, which is right a distinction that we certainly draw. Like, we're not saying that um, priests have to uh, preside over same-sex marriages. That's clearly not the case. Or religious organizations have to change their religious doctrine to to embrace same-sex marriage. That's, again, not the case. Those are st uh, very strict lines that we want to um, abide by. But we are saying when you're in the market, um, you got to serve uh, and just serve at a basic baseline. So you mentioned that Masterpiece Cake Shop ended up going off on grounds that had to do with the specifics of that case, and the, and the court didn't really get to address the issues that you guys have raised. 
which means those are still out there and there are other wedding vendor cases in the pipeline. Where are we on that right now? So the Supreme Court of Masterpiece held that Jack Phillips was entitled in his particular case to refuse to serve a gay couple, and mainly because the court found that the Colorado courts had not treated him fairly, that some of the members of, of the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado had made statements that were biased uh, against his religious beliefs. And it resolved the issue on that grounds. It didn't, what it didn't do, and this is the important part, it didn't reach the substantive question of whether as a constitutional matter under the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, Jack Phillips or some other wedding vendor is entitled, has a right to refuse um, to serve uh, gay couples because they have a religious objection to participating in um, a same-sex wedding celebration. And there are a lot of other cases that raise that substantive question. There's a case pending um, in Washington State called Arlene Flowers, where a florist refused uh, to provide flowers for uh, a gay marriage. And she says, look, I'm willing to provide flowers for gay couples. I don't discriminate otherwise. But in this particular kind of case, right, when we're dealing with weddings, I don't want to be involved in gay marriage. I can't be seen to support gay marriage. I can't be made complicit in that practice. And there are cases involving calligraphers and videographers and uh, B&Bs that, uh, that, you know, provide venues. If you're going to elope, right, you have to go off some some hotel, someplace, right? There are, there are all of these cases that are percolating in the courts. There's a case out of Arizona. There, there are other cases that are coming up to the court, and eventually the Supreme Court is going to have to address this question. They're going to be forced um, to come back around and, and to reach the question that Masterpiece Cake Shop avoided. So we've been talking about free exercise, right, and the question of exemptions, but you all also write about the Establishment Clause, and especially in the context of monuments and statues and other symbolic expressions. And And I thought maybe let's 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 take a turn and and turn toward those. So give us a little bit of the context in which those cases often come up. So you want to talk about even more controversial subjects, right? <laughs> it's super fraught. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of strong views on all kinds of sides, and the symbolic cases are really are are really fraught too. And what we're seeing is uh, uh, there's a case that's as we're taping this in the court about a whether a government sponsored forty foot cross in Bladensburg, uh, Maryland, is okay, um, or whether that's that represents an establishment of religion. The doctrine before this has been this non-endorsement theory, which is that the government can't really and isn't supposed to state religious truths, right? The government is not supposed to endorse a particular religion or express support for it. Uh, religion is supposed to be for not for the government. There's just not they're not they're not supposed to be competent to to express religious truth, and that goes to symbolic displays too, like a cross or or some other kind of display. And that doctrine is up for grabs too, for the reasons Micah has talked about. Um, and in this this cross case, the Bladensburg cross case, we predict that the court will say that cross is perfectly okay. And then we have to ask, well, why is it okay? We have written together uh, that we're we're not very comfortable with that kind of move. And um, I'll let Nelson tell us why, since he's the author of all these things. <laughs> tell us why, Nelson. Well, there are lots of ways to think about how the court could resolve cases um, to do with government expression that seems to endorse religious symbols. And the one that we've been attracted to 
the one that, that Justice O'Connor articulated and that Rich sort of described, which is that it sends a message that people who don't share that religion are somehow um, outsiders to the democratic community. Justice Kagan wrote an opinion in the um, legislative prayer case that Rich described earlier, where she said, you know, we don't want a situation where people stand before their government, not as just Americans, but as Jewish Americans or Muslim Americans or Christian Americans. That's sort of antithetical to the idea of American democracy, where people just stand before their government as Americans. So uh, we're worried that, you know, the government's endorsement of uh, particular religious symbols, that in this case, the cross, which is the kind of central symbol of Christianity, could have that kind of differentiating effect. But there are lots of ways that the court could kind of uphold the cross and say that that's consistent with our constitutional um, traditions. Um, one way is to say that the cross is actually not a religious symbol. It's a secular symbol. Um, in this case, um, it was erected um, in the early part of the 20th century as a, um, a memorial for World War I veterans um, who, who had lived in the area of Bladensburg. And so the court could say, well, the content, the message of the cross is actually a, a war memorial and it's not an endorsement of Christianity. Another way would be to say, no, it is an endorsement of Christianity, but there's neutrality because the town of Bladensburg has erected other monuments kind of around the cross that are secular in content and that um, bear a tribute to uh, veterans of other kinds of conflicts. And there's a Vietnam uh, memorial and one for other kinds of wars um, that are not as big as the cross, but they're 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 sort of scattered in the vicinity, in the general vicinity of the of the cross. Another way, which was sort of um, suggested by Justice Breyer in the oral argument about this case, would be to say it would be a problem for a town to erect a forty foot high cross, even as a war memorial today. But this cross has been around for a hundred years, and it's kind of lost its ability to divide Americans. Um, it's We should grandfather um, very old kinds of crosses. Also, it would be kind of, as a pragmatic matter, just kind of divisive to start taking down um, war memorials um, all across America, right? So every cross that was like this one would have to be um, taken down as well. And that would be kind of you know, kind of messy and uh, would lead to lots of conflict among Americans. So we should just leave leave these crosses up, but, you know, but recognize that it would be unconstitutional for governments to erect these kinds of memorials um, today. So there are these kind of strategies that the court has explored in uh, its case law or in, in dissents and so forth. And the question really isn't whether the court will strike down this cross, it probably will not, but what kind of strategy will adopt um, to leave the cross in place. So as we record this, it's June. It's almost the end of the Supreme Court term. We're going to get a decision about this in the next few weeks. Any predictions on which of the paths that you just laid out they're going to take? My strong sense from oral argument is that Justice Breyer will adopt this kind of grandfathering um, approach. And then the question is, um, how many, you know, how many justices will be drawn to it? It's conceivable, although I'm not going to predict this, but it's conceivable that Chief Justice Roberts could sign on to an opinion like that, um, but I'm not. I'm not so sure. Can, uh, the case is important for a couple of reasons. One, there's this big cross in Maryland, and there's a question about whether it should stay or whether it should go. But the case has attracted more attention because it's conceivable that the court will jettison decades of establishment clause jurisprudence. That it will use this case to dramatically reshape the the law. It will get rid of the endorsement test 
that Justice O'Connor laid out in the 1980s, you know, it, it might do away with the idea that there have to be secular purposes. Um, it might adopt something that's been described as a coercion test, that is the state only violates the establishment clause when it actually forces people to engage in some religious practice. I mean, there, a, lot of, a lot of jurisprudential change could happen here. And what, I think what Nelson is suggesting is actually the court will adopt um, a much narrower approach. This is consistent maybe with what Chief Justice Roberts has been doing more recently, which is to take a kind of more minimal case-by-case approach to controversial areas um, and, uh, and to do things slowly, not to make dramatic reforms in the doctrine. But the Establishment Clause has long been thought to be chaotic. That there are a lot of different tests that are floating around out there for determining when there's been an Establishment Clause violation. And especially among conservatives, there's a demand that the court clean up this area of the law and provide a clearer test. And so the question is, part of the question anyway, is whether the court will take this as an invitation to do that, or will it reach the conclusion that the cross um, can stay on much narrower, you know, case-specific grounds? And I think we're all predicting that the decision will be narrower, but there is this possibility, and I'm uh, the strong likelihood is we'll see versions of these more radical arguments represented in concurring opinions. But as you suggest, a lot of it rides on Roberts, right? On what attitude he takes toward the case. Yes, although... Um, because, uh, as Nelson mentioned, Justice Breyer has a particular view. I think he, he can make a difference in the outcome of this case. Um, I mean, as interesting as what the conservatives will do and how they'll divide, whether Chief Justice Roberts will uh, will agree with his more conservative colleagues, is a question of what will the more liberal and progressive justices do in this case. And I think we're expecting Justice Breyer, maybe Justice Kagan, to join a majority opinion allowing the cross to stay. And if I had to guess, I would expect that we'll see dissenting opinions from uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg. And I think among liberals and progressives, there's a question of how should dissenting justices approach this question or justices who are uncomfortable with the direction that the Establishment Clause is heading in. I've argued, Nelson and I have argued that those justices should stake out strong dissenting positions and should lay out for the future uh, an understanding of the Establishment Clause that protects equal citizenship and that says, look, the government has no business endorsing the primary symbols of a particular religious faith, and here it's a cross. There have been some arguments, and Nelson again mentioned one of these arguments, that the cross is really a secular symbol. And I think that's a kind of stunning claim. Justice Scalia said something like this in a case called Salazar against Bono in a in an exchange with an ACLU lawyer, Jewish lawyer named Peter Eliasberg, whose father was a veteran, where he says, you know, the, the cross is a war memorial, a secular memorial. And Eliasberg says to him, I've never seen a cross on the tombstone of a Jewish veteran. And there was laughter in the courtroom, and Scalia was outraged by the, by the laughter, I think. And he said, no, 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 that's not right. Um, these, these crosses represent all the war dead. And Eliasberg said, no, they don't. They don't represent Jewish war dead. Crosses don't represent Jews. I mean, there's an obvious reason for that. It's a central symbol of Christianity, and those symbols don't represent the faiths of, of Jewish veterans. And that principle is playing out here too, right? There's a question about what's the meaning of the symbol. And my understanding is that there are Christians who would also say, no, they don't, right? The cross is the central symbol of Christianity, and to, to call it a secular symbol would uh, also be demeaning of Christianity, right? And, and wouldn't, wouldn't accurately represent their view of their own religion. I think that's right. Um, there will be re religious arguments on both sides about the meaning of the, of the symbol, and Christians might object to this uh, understanding of it, that it trivializes the cross to describe it in this way as emptied of religious content as just a secular symbol. The other thing I would say, and this is more specific to the facts of the Bladensburg cross case, and it will be interesting to see how the court deals with this, but 
you know, there's evidence that, of course, there were Jewish soldiers in World War I, and none of their names are on the plaque in Bladensburg, even though some of the names on that plaque come from Baltimore or from other areas around that jurisdiction. And there's a question, like, when they decided to use a cross, did they also limit the group of soldiers who it represents? Yeah, the, the, you know, the cross case is part of a larger and a long-running, and we've talked a little bit about this, a long-running question about uh, religious expression in the public square. So there's certainly justices on the court now. I don't know how many who have critiqued the endorsement test in the past and would certainly be eager to abandon it um, going forward. What they're left with is is then, Mike, I mentioned this, this coercion test, which just says, well, there are no public symbols that would violate the Establishment Clause. You can put crosses up anywhere you want or other religious symbols. What's objectionable is if you force people to pray or you force people to go to church or you force people to pay taxes to a church they don't believe in, those kinds of things. That could open the door to lots of religious symbols in the public square uh, that are dominated by certain kinds of religious majorities. There's also a live example that I think carries a lot of uh, power for justices kind of across the spectrum of a place where government expression itself on religious questions is definitely unconstitutional. And that is the example of Great Britain, right? So Great Britain has an established church, right? The Anglican church is the church of England, right? And if the justices agree on anything, I would expect they would agree that we can't do that in America, right? And the Anglican church is very tolerant, right? So like religious freedom is robustly protected in Britain. Let's just stipulate that that's true. I think it is true. Um, so this is really like just pure expression. And it's even maybe accompanied by other expression that says like, you know, everybody's welcome in uh, Great Britain, right? So people of all religious faiths are welcome and we have an established church. And I, th I think the justices would all agree that you can't do that in America, but it is purely expressive, right, in some sense. I mean, they, there's some money as well, but I think today it's it's like a, it's it's just something that the, you know, the nation has kind of endorsed as an official matter. Um, and, you, you know, you can't do that in America. So if you're going to hold on to that intuition, which I think the justices must, then you have to articulate an establishment clause rule or doctrine that accounts for that. And these, the coercion test doesn't seem to account for it because the Church of England is not coercive. They're not proselytizing. Um, and yet, definitely unconstitutional, right? It's like an actual establishment. Look, the court just has lots of religion cases coming to it now, right? There, there's going to be a lot of action on church-state doctrine. We're going to see establishment clause cases going forward. We're going to see free exercise cases going forward. There's going to be a lot of change coming our way, and we're all struggling and trying to think about what it's going to look like. So you've laid out some of those issues for us, but we're going to see even more, and TSS is going to be very busy for the foreseeable future. Is that right? We're, we're in business. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you all for being thank here, you. Uh, especially Nelson, who traveled the furthest. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. It's finally made fabulous. it. Fabulous, I know. <laughs> really was it all it was cracked up to be? Yes, I'm starstruck. <laughs> You're lucky. We'll have you back.
So we covered a lot of ground, including the predictions of TSS on what will happen on the Bladensburg Cross case. That's American Legion versus American Humanist Association, which the Supreme Court should be handing down imminently. Imminently. In fact, by the time you listen to this, they may have already done it. So you'll be able to tell whether those predictions were right and which ones. Yep. And of course, thinking about the future, the wedding vendor cases aren't over either. And I want to go back a little bit to Masterpiece Cake Shop. You know, we don't actually know not only what will they do in religion, but even whether those will be religion cases, because we often think that legal cases or constitutional cases are only really about one issue, and they're not. And you actually brief lots of issues, and the court might address multiple issues. And in that case, there were free speech concerns as well as religion issues. And I think those will continue. And in fact, you and Micah co-wrote an article in the Harvard Law Review about Masterpiece Cake Shop, where you talked about the free speech aspects, and he was talking about the religion aspects. Can you say a little bit more about what those were and, and, and what you wrote about? Yeah. So there were both free exercise arguments and First Amendment freedom of speech arguments made by the litigant in Masterpiece Cake Shop. And it wasn't really clear during the litigation which of these the case was going to wind up being about. Is this going to be a case about um, about freedom of religion or is this going to be a case about freedom of speech? Both claims are active at the same time. So Micah and I ended up writing a piece talking about both of those things. It ended up being more of a religion case than a speech case, but it could have gone either way. So what were the speech issues in Masterpiece Cake Shop? Um, the, the claim by the baker is that a cake is expressive. It's an expressive uh product. So baking a wedding cake is speech. And so uh, a public accommodations law that says you have to serve gay customers is tantamount to saying you have to provide this expressive product that you disagree with. So the claim is that being forced to provide this cake is a form of compelled speech under the First Amendment. Like you know, the, the paradigm case is children being forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, which the Supreme Court ultimately determined that that's unconstitutional. And so what did the court say? So um, Justice Kennedy, writing for the majority, kind of waved his hands at this and said, there are serious issues that, that come up with this. And it's not really clear what the stopping point would be of calling something like cake baking speech, but there are also complicating factors about how customized the cake is and that kind of thing. Um, so he suggested the, the kind of anarchy problem that might come about by saying that lots and lots of commercial services are actually speech, um, but they end up not going down that road, not trying to resolve any of those issues. They instead turn to the religious claims. But free speech and religion claims um, do sometimes come up together. And I think you're right that within constitutional litigation, sometimes you never know where the blow may fall. You don't know what it is that the court's going to pick up on. And litigants um, have lots of reasons to look uh, through the Constitution to find various claims that they could make that frame the issue that they're having a little differently. And there's lots of strategy, litigation strategy by lawyers as to whether you really focus in on one main argument or you throw the kitchen sink and you offer lots of different arguments about it. And these kinds of cases, I think, certainly have multiple arguments trying to appeal uh, to different kinds of concerns and different justices. That's right. And they have had that for a long time. So just back to the Pledge of Allegiance cases, uh, that issue first came to the Supreme Court 
um, in the in the late 1930s and the the issue of children having to say the Pledge of Allegiance on pain of suspension or or whatnot, um, that was first framed as a religion claim. And the and the court they were said, Jehovah's Witnesses. They were Jehovah's right? Witnesses. They said we don't. It's a it's a form of idolatry to have to salute and pledge the flag. Um, and the Supreme Court rejected the claim. And then just a few years later, in 1943, in the Barnett case, uh, they picked up on the, the speech side of this and said this is a form of compelled speech. But there were religion claims and speech claims um, from the very beginning in this line of cases that Masterpiece Cake Shop is a part of. It sounds like your collaboration with your husband in writing an article together went more smoothly than uh, my uh, collaboration <laughs> recently with my husband. We were writing about Obama and the Supreme Court, but that's for another day. Uh, that was totally fun to do that with uh, with TSS. That was really fun. More fun than writing an article, really. I mean, writing an I article agree. is fun, but this is more fun. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Although I do feel a little sense of loss because I feel like our podcast time was kind of mysterious and separate, and now they've seen, you know, behind the curtain. What we actually do when we go off to do the podcast. Exactly. I worry about that. <laughs> I think Rich was more interested in what was happening. I think Mike is just like, whatever, just go. <laughs> I'll see you when you get back. Yeah, but, but I think maybe they also know it takes less time than we had said. And mm, so now we're gonna have to come up with other excuses shoot. when we're, oh, I'm too busy. I'm out there doing the podcast. <laughs> well, we can tell it's not always as fun and smooth as it is when you have TSS as guests, right? It was just, exactly they right. saw they saw the apex. What a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us. That's it for this episode of Common Law. We'd love to hear from any listeners who are not married to us, so please leave us a review and some stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Or you could tweet at us at Common Law UVA. The show is produced by Tyler Ambrose, Robert Armengall, Tony Field, and Mary Wood. Special thanks to the Virginia Quarterly Review and Virginia Humanities, where this episode was recorded. I'm Risa Galyuba. And I'm Leslie Kendrick. Please join us next time for our season finale. Season finale. I know. And stay tuned for a new round of shows and a new theme on our second season, coming up in the fall. <laughs>